This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Uh, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Thank you. Loads of you have posted some very nice comments on uh, iTunes. Uh, some of you have been moaning a bit, but that's, you know, to be expected. But if you're in that way inclined and you want to give us a review on iTunes, it would be very much appreciated, or wherever you get your podcast from. Coming up today is the first PMQs Unpacked of 2021. Tim Shipman joining me to pause the action live from the House of Commons to analyse in real time. The shenanigans between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. But first, our columnist panel. It's Wednesday, so it must be Camp Alice. That's John Kapner and Alice Thompson. Let's talk about Boris Johnson's bike and what is local. Seven miles. Some people pointing out seven miles is not very far to go on a bike ride. Um, Questions about whether or not if you're on a Boris bike, you know, a higher bike, that seems more like a visit than an exercise regime. Does any of this matter, Alice? Are we all just getting our knickers in a twist, basically because we just don't like the rules? And so what we want to do is find a way around the rules and have permission to break the rules that we know we shouldn't be breaking. In some ways, this is the Scotch egg moment. But on the other hand, (laughs) I do think there's a sense that people have absolutely no idea on the nuances of what they're supposed to do. We all know we should stay at home and you know that you can um, only sort of bubble with anyone else if you're vulnerable or you need to or you've got small children. But beyond that, it gets more complicated. And I think I always thought it was you really needed to exercise from home and come back home. Um, and, you know, if you're a manic um, man or male cyclist, that might mean 45 miles. And if you're someone like me, that might mean a mile, actually. <laughs> but um, I think that uh, it, it makes it harder when there are too many nuances. So that's why people worry about Boris Johnson. And it's not just Boris. They're doing it with their neighbours and their friends. So all of us, if we have to admit it, are, you know, a friend will say they're doing something. And we're like, really? Sure. And we're quite judgmental, I think, in these final stages when we're all absolutely exhausted and it's freezing and cold and bleak about what other people are doing. We're much more concerned about what they're doing and whether they're doing it right. And I think the only thing the government can do is give very, very clear direction on this, and I think they should be. 
I suppose the problem is, uh, John, that uh, when we had the, the full lockdown in March last year, it was very, very, it was sort of very straightforward, but it was also very strict. And there weren't, you know, people said there needed to be opt outs, whether it's for funerals or, you know, um, uh, having, you know, support bubbles and all that sort of thing. But the trouble is, once you start having uh, opt-outs and uh, you know extra extra lines of instructions and rules that you can you can abide by, people start trying to find. You know, none of us want to stay at home. Uh, none of us want to not see our friends. So if there is a little route through them, people will try and find. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We shouldn't be meeting up with people if we don't need to. We shouldn't be wandering around garden centres if we don't need. But if garden centres are open and coffee shops are doing takeaways, why can't we get a coffee and meet a friend? And that's that's the problem, isn't it? A couple of quick stories, Matt, from my sister who lives in San Sebastian in uh, in northern Spain, in the, in the Basque country. During the height of the first lockdown in March, uh, she told me two stories. The first was that you you were allowed to go to your local shop, but it had to be your very, very nearest shop, depending on it could be a very expensive delicatessen or it could be um, a very cheap uh, supermarket. But whatever it was, you had to go to it. And you had to go to it only by the shortest possible route. And one day she got stopped <laughs> by some police touring in a car who asked her where she was going, asked for her ID card, which said where she, where she was going. They looked it up on their Google Maps or something, found that she had deviated by a couple of streets and tried to find her 125 euros. Um, and then she sort of played the, the dumb foreigner and, and, and got away with it. But um, that is how you apply things strictly. Does that lead to greater adherence well i don't know it certainly leads to to bad blood and people getting cross and and everyone looks for whether it's right or wrong everybody looks for ways of getting around it so in that very same country uh one of the exemptions was you could walk your dog so everybody in her block of flats was begging her and her husband uh, if they could borrow her dog um, and begging everybody else in the block if they could borrow their dogs to go for walks, which led to a whole bunch of extremely dangerously exhausted dogs. So you get to this sense of sort of people uh, trying to find a way really out of um, it, it sort of doesn't matter whether the rules are unbelievably strict or or not, because people are sort of driven to distraction. And, and I do agree that you should leave it to people's discretion a little bit. It does also feel that there's, there's a sort of spin operation going on here, isn't there, Alice? They're actually uh, having, we're on to now, what, day three of this debate about rules and policing and yes. clampdowns and fines and all that sort of stuff. Uh, just sort of putting the frighteners on everyone. Uh, it doesn't matter if an extra fine is or isn't um, handed out. You know, supermarkets have tightened up again. I noticed when I went to the supermarket over Christmas, it was all a bit more lax than it had been. Uh, and all that's been tightened up again. You've got the bloke outside with these, you know, uh, antibacterial wipes for the trolleys and all that. All those extra little things which do make quite a big difference. It's just nudged everyone back into, the, to, you know, just, you know, we've got a bit lax and just tightening everything up again. Well, there is a sense as well, though, that actually everyone is doing their best. So I think everyone does break a few rules. 
rules and a very few people are breaking a lot of rules. But I wonder whether the government needs to start saying soon a bit more of uh, you're all doing really well. I mean, Pretty Patel is probably not the best person to make everyone feel better. But I think you need to have some sense with um, I don't know. I think they're saying the well done to the majority because I think the majority of people do think they are doing quite well. They may not think their neighbours are, but they do all think they're doing quite a lot. And I think many of them are. And I, you know, I hear so many stories I and mean, I'm lucky because I'm with my family. But if you're on your own, it can be extremely lonely still, particularly for the elderly. And most of them haven't had their um, jabs and the elder ones who have are still aren't safe to go out yet. You know, and so it is a struggle and you know, it's, a, it's a huge struggle for um, the children and the teenagers. And the, the ones I admire most are the sort of 16 to 25 year olds who aren't because they're just starting to socialise and now they've got to go back to their parents. I think that's almost impossible for them. And I think most of them do seem to be complying. I mean, the one thing I think people I don't understand why we are so lax and it doesn't happen in other countries is supermarkets and, and shops and, and buses. In other countries, if you get on a bus uh, and you're not wearing a mask, the driver will simply stop. Won't drive. You know, I was um, in. I know you always um, laugh when I bring up Germany, but I was in uh, on a bus last <laughs> autumn uh, when Clang, it was actually. Uh, not, not I'll give you a honk of the horn for mentioning, <laughs> for mentioning Germany. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> you can start singing a certain national anthem. No, anyway, so I was on a bus, and um, it was not during the, the height of things. Things were relatively relaxed in October. Um, uh, a woman came on. I don't think she was being defiant. I think she'd genuinely forgotten, and sat down, and the bus driver just said, uh, I'm not driving this bus on until you either put on a mask or leave the bus. And then she said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, and put it on. And it was really simple. And I don't see why people should be, you've got people, as you say, outside supermarkets monitoring queues and, and everything else. You simply say, sorry, I can't let you into this supermarket. You're not wearing a mask unless you've got a, a certified exemption. And there'll be people screaming at the radio, John, uh, saying, uh, because I don't want to wear a mask. It's my right not to wear a mask. Um, yeah, but it's not your right to protect people. Yeah, it's your, <laughs> and you can you can exercise your right not to wear a mask while you're walking um, <laughs> home from the supermarket rather than going yeah. on the bus. And it's and, and the supermarket uh, is under no obligation to allow you in either. It is the supermarket's right. If you're drunk and disorderly, the supermarket will not let you in. So if you're not wearing a mask at a time when masks are required, the supermarket shouldn't let you in. Straight, it's pure and simple, and it is the supermarket's responsibility, in my view. Okay, well, in Devon, in deepest rural Devon, where uh, Matt comes from and where I am at the moment, I'm absolutely fascinated because this just passes me by because all the supermarkets and the farmer's market and um, where we all shop locally, everyone is wearing a mask. And these are people who aren't usually used to following the rules and don't particularly like the government or being told what to do from London. But they are all wearing masks when they go inside. And you know that includes everyone, old, young, there doesn't seem to be a problem with the mask wearing. Um, mm. There's more of a problem that there are quite a lot of cars on the road still and that people are obviously driving. I don't know where they're driving to. Maybe they are all driving to nurseries and they are all driving to essential work. But I'd say there's still quite a lot of traffic and quite a lot of people um, going to and fro. Yeah, and I'd a lot like more walking. Like maybe that's a good thing because maybe we're all going to get more fit. Got to do your 10,000 steps every day minimum, that's for sure. Get your, <laughs> get your hour in. Uh, just very quick, there's this been the suggestion that local elections might be postponed. Uh, the Labour MP, Andrew Gwynn, is in the Times today saying that this is Boris Johnson's attempt to secure 
what he calls a vaccine bump by delaying local elections until um, more people have been vaccinated. I mean, part of me thinks if they are going to be delayed, it's because it's not safe people turning up. It, it, it's not totally clear, clear yet what, what the plan is. What do you think, John? Should the, the local elections, whatever you've got, elections in Scotland and Wales as well, should they go ahead? Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, as things stand. I would have said definitely a month or so ago, as things stand there in the air, um, the decision should be cross-party, so nobody is seen to take uh, any advantage. And obviously, uh, in Scotland, that's uh, for uh, the Scottish government and the Scottish parliament to decide. I do find it it's bizarre that everybody is talking now, or not everybody, some people are talking now, about a vaccine bump. Um it sort of suggests that the vaccine's gone wrong and you've got a bump in your arm. But um, it, but more to the point, it, I mean, our memory is really that short. Um, the government that has delivered uh, the largest amount of excess deaths since the 1940s, one of the worst coronavirus responses of any country in the world, is somehow, as soon as we've got vaccinated, everybody says happy days. Uh, I mean, it's bizarre if that's... if, if we as an electorate are so fickle. Although, I mean, I suppose it's worth pointing out that the virus has delivered the worst excess deaths. And, the, and the, actually, we found in our focus group yesterday, voters are still very forgiving of the government and Boris Johnson and, and think, you know, it's a tough, well, you get tough the situation. I think there will be a bounce back, actually. I mean, I think, I think there is a point to that. So I think, you know, if you delay the elections, yes, I think the government might do better might because they get this vaccination programme right. And whatever you think of the government... Uh, we do want to get this vaccination programme right. If if they do well on that, then there will be a sense of relief. And there's going to be a sort of sense of relief anyway of getting out of this pandemic, getting out of the lockdown. But I think the problem is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If we do have the elections <laughs> yeah, yeah. going on, everyone's going to be campaigning. That's not a great idea. You don't want to have well, that's what I thought. You could just as easily see Labour saying, don't have them. Are you mad? That's unsafe. Yeah. You can't go around knocking on people's doors Exactly. In March, so you but... can't tell. I mean, that's the thing. It's not just <laughs> queuing up on the day to vote. It's the fact that you have got a campaign for this and that's quite complicated and difficult. So on the other hand, I think if you do it and then, you know, the Tories do better in certain areas, then, you know, everyone's going to blame it. So whatever happens, no one's really going to trust the next set of election results. And that is going to be difficult. But we have to factor that in, I think, in the end. Just finally, Alice, you've written your column today about sex in the city coming back. And I didn't realise it, having not really watched it that closely. Uh, but everything sort of uh, is all joined up. Donald Trump gets a mention in the very first episode. Well, actually, I watched it for the first time in whatever 20 years with my children. I've totally forgotten how much bizarre with the title, how yep. much sex there is in it. So it was that moment when you're with four teenagers and you start watching and then you slowly think, oh, maybe not. <laughs> and then there's more and more sex. And I was thinking, God. But it did remind me just what an easygoing, joyous, relaxed period it was in the millennium when no one was worrying about all the, anything major at all. It was all kind of ridiculous and it was all high heels and shopping and consumerism. There were no green issues. There was no Greta. Um, it was just such a different era then. And in many ways, it was fantastic. But in many ways, I don't think you could go back to that now because I think we are just in a very different place. That was John Campner and Alice Thompson. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week uh, on thetimes.co.uk. You just need to get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. So now it's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yes, Tim Shipman's here. Tim Shipman, we've got a new jingle. It's a new year, new jingle. Uh, Yes, very exciting indeed, Matt. Um, And a brief appearance from my wife there. (laughs) Complete all uh, online appearances. That is, uh, these are the times that we now uh, live in, of course. Uh, uh, I'm at home, Tim Shipman's at home. We're going to watch PMQs together, pausing the action, uh, as we always do with PMQs Unpacked, to explain what is going on, all being well. This really is the coolest watch party anywhere, isn't it? It (laughs) Tim, what do you expect to come up at uh, PMQs today? Well, I've I've been struggling to work it out. Poor old Keir Starmer's only got six questions. I was sort of jotting down things he might go on. Uh, Boris Johnson's bike ride, the um, shambles over the school meals, uh, his call for nurseries to close, the the school's U-turn last week, the vaccine rollout, which we now are told we're going to get vaccine centres 24-7, which 48 hours ago they said they weren't going to do. I mean, the man is spoilt for choice, isn't he? He is a bit. Um, Do we think, uh, who's starting the year in the best shape, do we think? Uh, well, I mean, uh, interestingly, I think we're, we're where we've been for several months, which is that Boris Johnson is walking... Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the condolences expressed by the Prime Minister, I'm sure, on behalf of the whole of the um, House? Can I also, Mr Speaker, begin by paying tribute to all of those involved in the vaccine programme? I went to the Newham Vaccine Hub last week, and it was really uplifting to see the NHS, the Red Cross and lots of volunteers all working together and giving real hope. They had a simple message to me, which is if they had more vaccine, uh, they could and they would do more. And I'm sure that's shared across the country. Um, I welcome news that's come out this morning about a pilot of 24-7 vaccine centres. I anticipate there's going to be huge clamour for this. So can the Prime Minister tell us when will the 24-7 vaccine centres be open to the public, because I understand they're not at the moment, and when will they be rolled out across the country? Uh, well, I'm uh, grateful to the uh, right honourable gentleman for what he says about the 
the rollout of vaccines. And I can tell him that uh, we'll be uh, going to uh, 24-7 as soon as uh, we can. And uh, my rival friend, the Health Secretary, will be setting out uh, more about that in in due course. And as he rightly says, uh, at the moment, the limit is on uh, supply. Uh, We have a huge network, 233 hospitals, 1,000 GP surgeries, uh, 200 uh, pharmacies and 50 uh, mass vaccination centres. And uh, they are going, uh, as uh, he has seen himself, uh, exceptionally fast. I pay tribute uh, to their work. And uh, it's thanks to uh, the the work of the NHS and to the Vaccine Task Force uh, that we have secured uh, more doses, I think, uh, per capita than virtually any other country in the world, certainly more than any other country in Europe. So let's dive in there, as we do with PMQs unpacked. We pause the action just to take stock of what they're saying and see if there's any, any news committed. Uh, main thing that leapt out there, Boris Johnson confirming that um, 24-7 vaccination centres are going to happen to him. Yeah, and that they will get rolled out um, further than, than just sort of uh, the odd one or two. Um, what he wasn't able to say was how quickly. I think the, we got exceptionally fast today. So not uh, there was a sort of claim of world beating at the end. Um, where he said we're the best in Europe. And actually, per capita, we seem to be. The Israelis are miles ahead of everybody. And there's a couple of places in the Middle East that have done quite well on vaccination. Um, And I think we're sort of third or fourth uh, in line. Uh, The government doesn't get a lot of credit for that um, because uh, so much of the sort of detail appears to be um, uh, disorganised. But, um, you know, let's be frank, um, it's only a bunch of public pressure that has made them do this 24-7 thing. Um, a lot of people have been making that point in the last 72 hours and the government seems to have responded um, uh, exceptionally fast, but we're not quite clear how fast. Yeah, and I suppose the thing is, having got that early advantage of proving the vaccines early, um, it would look really bad if Britain now let that, um, let, let that advantage slip. Let's go back to the House of Commons. Keir Starmer's second question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I obviously welcome that and urge the Prime Minister and the Government to get on with this. We're all happy to help and there are many volunteers who are, the sooner we have 24-7 vaccine centres, the better for our NHS and the better for our economy. Mr Speaker, the last PMQs was on the 16th of December. The Prime Minister told us then that we were seeing, in his words, a significant reduction in the virus, He told us then that there was no need for endless lockdowns and no need to change the rules about Christmas mixing. Since then, since that last PMQs, 17,000 people have died of COVID. 60,000 people have been admitted to hospital and there's been over a million new cases. How did the Prime Minister get it so wrong? And why was he so slow to act? Well, Mr Speaker, of course, what he fails to to point out is that uh, on the 18th of December, uh, two days later, uh, the uh, government was informed of the spread of the the new variant and the uh, fact that it spreads uh, roughly 50 to 70 percent faster than the the old variant. And uh, that is why it is indeed... Uh, correct to say that the situation today is uh, very troubling indeed. We have 32,000 COVID patients in hospital. The NHS is under huge strain. And Mr Speaker, I would like to take this opportunity uh, to pay tribute to all the staff, the doctors, the nurses, everybody working now in our NHS who are uh, doing an extraordinary job under the most challenging 
possible circumstances uh, to help those uh, who so desperately need it. And I thank them for what they are, they are doing. But at the same time, I also want to, to thank all those involved in what is the biggest vaccination programme in the history of this country, where once again uh, the, uh, the NHS is in the lead, working with the army and, and the legion of uh, volunteers and, uh, and everybody else. And that programme of vaccines, uh, Mr Speaker, does show the way forward. It does show how we're going to uh, come through this uh, pandemic. And uh, again, I repeat uh, my, uh, my gratitude to all those involved because they've now vaccinated 2.4 million people, delivered 2.8 million doses, uh, more than any other country in Europe. Uh, this is the toughest of times, Mr Speaker, but we can see the way forward. OK, uh, let's just jump in now. I mean, some stark figures, uh, Tim Shipman, from Keir Starmer. 17,000 people have died from coronavirus since the last PMQs. Prime Minister pointing out that he only was told of the, the danger caused by this, this uh, new variant two days after the last PMQs. So an awful lot has happened since the Commons last met. Yeah, we've had um, a year's worth of news in a month, haven't we, effectively? Um, this is, um, but this is what Starmer has done fairly effectively over the last year. This is his big picture argument. Uh, this is the argument he's going to present at the next general election about Boris Johnson, that uh, he takes his eye off the ball and that he acts too slowly and that ultimately the government have not been tough enough and have not kept a lid on the virus. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I've been listening to a bunch of focus groups in the last couple of days. Um, I think that view is pretty prevalent in the public. But the other view that's reasonably prevalent is that this is a very tough situation and the government is kind of uh, muddling along. And while people are disappointed with them, they also understand that there are problems. And that's why you still have both parties locked pretty much dead level in the opinion polls. Um, but this is the big argument that Starmer wants to prosecute. And those figures are pretty stark. I do wonder, having listened to um, our Times Radio focus group as well this week, there's a bit of people quite like Bo uh, Boris Johnson when he opens up the economy and he le eases some restrictions, even if deep down we know he shouldn't be doing it and it's a bit premature, and then he leaves it too long, but at least we can go and meet our mates and all that sort of thing, and then he locks. So although they probably agree with Keir Starmer that in terms of controlling the virus, it's you know the right thing to do to act earlier, actually they, they sort of buy in and go along with um, with what Boris Johnson's been doing. Let's go back. Question three from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister says that effectively two days after that PMQs, the advice changed. The truth is the indicators were all in the wrong direction back uh, at the last PMQs. But be that as it is made, the, the Prime Minister says he got that advice on the 18th of December, two days after PMQs. And we've all seen the sage minutes of the 22nd of December confirming the advice that was given to the government. Uh, the government's advisers warned the Prime Minister that the new variant was spreading fast and it was highly unlikely that November-style lockdowns would be sufficient to control it. Pretty clear advice on the 18th of December to the Prime Minister from SAGE. Tougher lockdown than November is going to be needed. I've got the minutes here. Everybody's seen them. Yet instead of acting on the 18th of December... The Prime Minister sat on his hands for over two weeks. We're now seeing in the daily figures the tragic consequences of that delay. So how does the Prime Minister justify delaying for 17 days after he got that advice on the 18th of December? 
Uh, well, Mr. Speaker, I, I must uh, disagree very uh, profoundly with what the right honourable gentleman has just said, because he knows very well that within 24 hours of getting the advice on uh, on the 18th about the, the spread of the new variant, we acted to put uh, the vast part of the country into much, much tougher measures. And uh, indeed, uh, they have what we are now seeing, and it's, it's very, very important. Uh, to, to stress that these are early days, uh, we are now seeing the, uh, the beginnings of some signs that that is starting to have an effect in, in, in many parts of the country, but by no means everywhere. And it is early days, Mr. Speaker, and people must uh, keep their uh, discipline, keep enforcing uh, the rules, and uh, work together, as, uh, as I've said, to roll out uh, that vaccine. Uh, program. But, Mr. Speaker, I, uh, I do recall that on the, on the day that we went into a, a national uh, lockdown, and uh, sadly we were obliged to, uh, to shut the schools, uh, even on that day uh, the Labour Party uh, was uh, advocating keeping schools open uh, for understandable reasons, uh, Mr. Speaker, because we all want uh, to keep schools open, but I think it a bit much uh, to be uh, attacked uh, for taking tougher measures uh, to put this country uh, into the protective measures it needed when uh, the Labour Party were themselves uh, calling uh, them to keep schools open. Uh, the tit for tat of uh, uh, the Labour Party calling to keep schools open. Of course, actually, if Boris Johnson was so keen on uh, shutting the schools, he might have announced it uh, with more than five minutes notice as he did last week. Yeah, no, Boris Johnson was absolutely determined to keep the schools open as well. Um, uh, the previous Friday, many of his ministers wanted to close them and he was still doing Andrew Marr two weekends back um, on the Sunday saying he wouldn't do it. And the following day on the Monday, he did. So, um, you know, Starmer can always build a case on these specifics and it's reasonably uh, rhetorically effective. Um, Johnson can intone gravely and say um, that we did act. It, may not have been tough enough. Um, the problem we've got with all these figures, as he sort of implied there in his answer, uh, the Prime Minister, um, you know, there is at least a two-week lag time in knowing what effect the things you have done have had on the numbers. So it may be that that going into sort of tier four uh, in December actually is beginning to have an effect in plateauing off um, the infection rate. Um, since then, we've locked down even harder. Um, but that won't become clearer until, you know, closer to the end of the month. And that's sort of where we are, isn't it? They're actually, in terms of epidemiologically or whatever, um, the government, you know, has put the lockdown in. It takes a couple of weeks for that to feed through into the figures. We're possibly already seeing um, some of the figures topping out. Keir Stomach can keep saying, well, you need to do something else. You need to do something else. Uh, it makes sense to wait and see if what, what is currently being done uh, works. But of course, if it's not working, then Keir Starmer can say later, well, I did tell you to do something else. Um, it's also not totally clear what else there is. I mean, apart from... Uh, you know, quite how many people are catching it while um, collecting a takeaway coffee or having a wander around B&Q. It's not totally clear. I mean, you could shut nurseries possibly, but... Well, Starmer I mean, has I... called for nurseries to shut, but the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you now without a two-year-old in my lap is because the nurseries are open. So, you know... Yes, a... I'm not sure that's the biggest vote winner, that one. No, possibly not, <laughs> but uh, there'd be a lot of people in the same boat unable to do a, an hour's work um, uh, if they've got children rolling about. So... Uh, and, and the key thing there is that uh, who's got those people in, in nursery? A lot of the time it's key workers. Um, that's nurses and doctors um, and people like that. And if they can't work because their kids need to be at home, uh, you know, that's a real, real problem. So, um, you know, the, shutting nurseries is a pretty double-edged sword, I think. Yeah, exactly right. Well, let's go back. Question four from Keir Starmer. 
Mr Speaker, just for the record, I wrote to the Prime Minister on the 22nd of December. I hadn't seen the sage advice at that stage, saying to him, if it indicated there should be a national lockdown, he should do it immediately and he'd have our full support. I'll, I'll put that in the public domain so people can just check the record. But, Mr Speaker, more fundamentally, the Prime Minister says we took measures straight away, we put people into different tiers. The advice was a November-style lockdown is not enough. How on earth was putting people into a different tiered system an answer to the advice that was given? And isn't this the situation, that every time there's a big decision to take, the Prime Minister gets there late? The next big decision is obvious. The current restrictions are not strong enough to control the virus. Stronger restrictions are needed. And it's no, it's no point members opposite shaking their heads. In a week or two, the Prime Minister is likely to be asking members to vote for this. So can the Prime Minister tell us, when infection rates are much higher than last March, when hospital admissions are much higher than last March, when death rates are much higher than last March, why on earth are restrictions weaker than last March? Uh, Mr Speaker, we, we keep things under a constant review and we will continue to do so. And certainly if there is any need to toughen up uh, restrictions, which I don't rule out, Mr. Speaker. We will, of course, uh, we will, of course, come to this House. But uh, perhaps, as, as is so often the case, uh, the right honourable gentleman didn't listen to my earlier answer uh, because I pointed out to the House that actually the, the lockdown measures that we have in place, combined with the Tier 4 measures that we are using, are starting to show signs of, of some effect. And we must take account of that too, Mr. Speaker, because nobody can doubt the serious damage that is done uh, by lockdowns to people's mental health, uh, to jobs, uh, to livelihoods as well. Uh, and Mr. Speaker, uh, if to listen to the right honourable gentleman over the last 12 months, you'd, you'd think he had absolutely no other policy except to plunge this country into 12 months uh, of lockdown. And as for, as for, as for coming, uh, coming too late to things, Mr. Speaker, I think it's, it was only a few weeks ago uh, that he was attacking the vaccine task force that has secured uh, the very doses, the millions uh, of doses that have put this country into the comparatively favourable position that we now find ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dig into when uh, Keir Starmer uh, perhaps comes to things a bit late. If you, if it is a bit muted, and, and uh, Keir Starmer mentioning that um, MPs were shaking their heads, which doesn't come across terribly well on TV or radio, uh, there aren't actually that many MPs in the Commons, and those that are um, are wearing masks. There's a new instruction from uh, Lindsay Hall. You remember I spoke to Lindsay Hall on the show last week, and he mentioned that he wanted MPs if they weren't speaking to wear masks. So. Not many there than those that are, are um, wearing masks. Uh, are we getting much further on this, Tim Shipman? I feel like Keir Thomas asked, asked the same question, was it four times now? Well, he obviously thinks he's on to a winner. Um, um, you know, but Boris Johnson's answer there, I think, was interesting. And it tapped into what you were saying earlier about the focus groups you'd been listening to, which is you know, the government can either have a strategy that allows us to coexist with the virus in a permanent state, but that would involve pretty... Uh, substantial restrictions for the whole time or we can go, keep going through this cycle of um, locking down and opening up and, and while it's frustrating and irritating and uh, it may be slightly more there is an argument the government could make they don't necessarily make it very uh, efficiently that it's better for the economy to allow pockets of uh, uh, of economic activity and also as you said earlier for the mental health of people that once in a while they do get to go out um, you would hope, combined with the vaccine, that, that becomes uh, more of a reality. Um, 
but you know he can hit back and say the alternative is you know we're locked down for for an entire year um whether that's quite Labour Party policy, I somewhat doubt. Yeah, although that is that is sort of the implication. Keir Starmer's the implication of what been. he's saying, but um, it's not you know explicit policy, and I doubt it would become such. Okay, I think we've got two more less. There's a question five from Keir Starmer. True. I've every time I've spoken about the vaccine, I've supported it. But the prime minister said the prime minister says we're balancing health restrictions and the economy, and yet we ended 2020 with the highest death toll in Europe and the deepest recession in any major economy. So that just isn't a good enough answer. Mr Speaker, I want to turn to the latest free school meals scandal. We've all seen images on social media of disgraceful food parcels for children, costed at about £5 each. That's not what the government promised. It's nowhere near enough. So can I ask the Prime Minister, would he be happy with his kids living on that and if not why is he happy for other people's kids to do so well mr speaker i don't think anybody in this house is happy with the uh, disgraceful images that we've seen of the food parcels that have been offered they are appalling they're an insult to the families uh, that have received them and i'm grateful by the way to marcus rashford who highlighted the uh, the issue and is doing quite an effective job by comparison with the right honourable gentleman uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in holding the government to account for, uh, uh, for these issues. And uh, the company in question has rightly apologised and agreed to, uh, to reimburse. But it, it is because we want, uh, because we want to see uh, our kids properly fed throughout this very difficult uh, pandemic uh, that we've massively increased uh, the value of, uh, of what we're providing, another £170 million in the COVID winter grant scheme, £220 million more for the holiday activities and food programme, and uh, we're now rolling out the national free school meal voucher scheme as we did uh, in March uh, to give uh, parents uh, the choice to give kids the food that they need. Under this government, we will do everything we can to ensure that no child goes hungry as a result of the privations caused by this pandemic. Well, Keir Starmer, they're daring to talk about um, the Prime Minister's children, not numerically, but just asking if they would be ha- if he'd be happy for them to be handed a box with two two carrots, a potato, and a yogurt in it. Once again, uh, Tim, the government has it just seems to have a blind spot. And I don't know if it's a Gavin Williamson-shaped blind spot or whatever that um, they just can't seem to get on top of this question of uh, helping families with uh, children um, uh, feed their children during the school holidays. Uh, no, it's uh, this is now the third iteration of this row. Um, and, you know, we're reaching the point where, frankly, it would make more sense to point Marcus Rashford, the minister in charge of it. Um, the, the chutzpah involved there in Boris Johnson saying that uh, Rashford is doing a better job than Keir Starmer in holding him to account. You might say he's doing a rather better job than the ministers in prosecuting this issue as well. Um, you know, I mean, I realise he's busy playing football, but, um, you know, he would appear to have a decent level of capacity to actually get to grips with this. No, it's a, it's a blind spot for the Tories. They, you know, they're inherently suspicious of food banks and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, and why they don't see this as a massive political issue that they just need to squash once and for all. Uh, and handing it to a company that appears to have made a dog's breakfast of it and appeared until relatively recently to have links with Conservative Party donors is, uh, you know, the, the political equivalent of taking a gun and, you know, firing it so many times that you have about three toes left. Um, it is absolutely bizarre that they haven't got to grips with this. 
Interesting that Keir Starmer hasn't didn't do more questions on that. I know he's got one left, but actually um, hammering away on on this, it's it's the story that everyone's sort of talking about. Everyone's seen that photo of a of a bag of dry pasta and a piece of cheese. Um, uh, there was yeah, the two the stories box. are always going to cut through. We're going to be the, the food one and the fact that Boris Johnson went cycling the other day. We'll, we'll wait and see whether he comes at him uh, on the, in the final question on that. But uh, those are the two things most likely to attract a headline and to get noticed. Um, as I say, Starmer likes building a long-term argument um, uh, about this government, and he's done that relatively effectively in this uh, uh, set of questions. But uh, if he wanted sort of sexy headlines, he's not gone about it entirely the right way, to be honest. Well, let's see. This is what we call the social media section, where both of them wrap up their big argument in some snappy sound bites that they hope will go viral on uh, Twitter. It's Keir Starmer's last question. Uh, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister says that the parcels are disgraceful, but it shouldn't have taken social media to shame the Prime Minister into action. Like the Education Secretary, he blames others, and he invites me to hold him to account. So, so let, let me do that, because blaming others, Prime Minister, is... It's not as simple as that, is it? Because I've checked the government guidance on free school meals, the current guidance published by the Department of Education. I've got it here. It sets out example parcel for one child for five days. Department of Education, Prime Minister, you want to be held to account. One loaf of bread, two baked potatoes, block of cheese, baked beans, three individual yogurts. Sound familiar? That's the images, Prime Minister, you just called disgraceful. The only difference I can see in this list and what the Prime Minister has described as disgraceful is a tin of sweet corn, a packet of ham and a bottle of milk. So he blames others. But this is on his watch. The truth is families come last under this government, whether it's exams, free school meals or childcare. Will the Prime Minister undertake, he wants to be held to account, to, to take down this guidance by the close of play today? and ensure that all of our children can get a decent meal during the pandemic. Speaker, the right honourable gentleman's words would be less hypocritical and absurd if it were not for the fact that the... the... I don't believe anybody's a hypocrite in this chamber. I think we need to be a little bit careful about what we're saying to each other. There was a not-truth earlier, and there was also comparisons to others. Please, let's keep the discipline in this chamber and the respect for each other We've tidying up how this Parliament behaves, and I certainly expect the leadership of both parties to ensure that takes place. Prime Minister, would you like to withdraw hypocrisy? I'm delighted to be advised by you, Mr Speaker. Let me confine my, uh, my criticism to the absurdity of the, which I th- hope is acceptable, Mr Speaker, of the Right Honourable Gentleman uh, attacking us over free school meals when it was a Conservative government that instituted uh, free school meals, universal free not a, not a, not a Labour government, and, uh, and, of, and of the £280 billion that we have spent securing the jobs and the livelihoods of people across this country, uprating uh, universal credit, uh, increasing, and, 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 and in addition increasing the living wage by record amounts this year and, and last year, increasing local housing Alliance. The, the overwhelming majority, the bulk of the uh, measures, uh, the benefits fall uh, for, in, in favour of the poorest and the neediest in society, which is what this House uh, would expect. And, and Mr Speaker, he takes one position one week, uh, one position the next. That is what he does. That's been his whole lamentable approach throughout this, if I can get away with lamentable, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, throughout <laughs> this uh, pandemic. And uh, he says he supports the vaccine. 
vaccine now. He says he supports the vaccine rollout, uh, and, and he goes and tries to associate himself uh, with it because he senses uh, that it is going well. But don't, be in no doubt, that was the party that wanted us, this country, to stay in uh, the European Union uh, vaccine programme. He stood further. He stood on. Yeah, absolutely true. He stood on a manifesto. Um, he stood on a manifesto which he has not repudiated, Mr. Speaker, uh, to dismantle the very pharmaceutical companies that have created this miracle of science, which is true. Prime Minister, there are questions, and sometimes we've got to try and answer the question to what was asked of you. I think to run through the history is one thing. But in fairness, it is Prime Minister's questions, but I would say it was the final question. We've got lots of others to go through. So I think what I'm going to do now is move on to Simon Jupp in Sidmouth, who's desperate to ask a question. Well, there we are. Um, it's Lindsay Hall really uh, getting tough with Boris Johnson, uh, telling him he can't call Keir Starmer a hypocrite, which I think is, that's, I think that's a new... You normally are not allowed to call, uh, say that someone has been... Um, uh, lied in any way or misled the house. That's definitely a no no. I wasn't aware that hypocrite was a was. I think if we were ruling out claims of hypocrisy, we were going to have a pretty uh, arid political debate. <laughs> over, I think that's a step too far, personally. I think so on safer grounds, you know, he did respond to Hoyle. He kind of, you know, he took the Mickey out of it a little bit. But um, if John Burko had been doing it in his uh, sanctimonious fashion, I think he would have got pretty short shrift from a Tory Prime Minister there. But Hoyle actually has quite a lot of respect uh, on the Tory benches. And, uh, you know, if he can uh, make things a little more civil, it'd be, it'd be quite interesting. Um, but yeah, um, just, I mean, while, just while that last thing was playing out there and uh, uh, Keir Starmer weeding out that guidance of what shouldn't should be in a food parcel, uh, number 10 um, have, uh, uh, have put about this guidance, which uh, the, um, sources are saying that it's been selectively quoted in the Commons, uh, which shows the parcel highlighted yesterday did not nearly meet the DfE requirements. So, so journalists will be pouring over that to see if, I mean, it seemed like quite a good hit from Keir Starmer to say, look, I've got the guidance here. Basically, what you're telling people to put in these boxes uh, isn't up to scratch, um, uh, uh, which seemed like quite a good story. Number 10 saying. Yeah, but the interesting thing here is, I mean, we've got two WhatsApp messages here, one from the Labour Party saying this is the guidance and it's all terrible, and the other one from from Downing Street saying they're misquoting it. I mean, that's pretty fast work from both sides. Um, and I can think of, you know, times during perhaps Theresa May against Jeremy Corbyn where... Um, Neither operation had its uh, <laughs> on, um, and these kind of messages would appear about four hours later. So um, it shows they're both on the ball. So uh, a win for the spin teams, but uh, who, who emerged today as the winner? Do we think? Well, I mean, yet again, Boris Johnson came in on a sticky wicket, and he he leaves, you know, having taken a pounding on his uh, upper body, but without his wickets falling completely over. <laughs> um, and Starmer, you know, has built you know, more of that long-term case and by peppering the Prime Minister with all these balls, um, he's shown that he can. Um, it's a sort of, it's a softening up exercise. It's part, you know, it's the early overs of a test match where, um, you know, he's given the PM a hard time, but, you know, the bloke's still there. So um, it, it's a score draw. Um, I would have thought Starmer would probably emerge marginally happier, but, um, you know, sometimes, as we said at the top of this programme, there's a lot to go on and, you know, he hasn't necessarily delivered the killer blow. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.